Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. We're a network that exists to provide relationships and resources to amplify a Jesus-centered movement, and we seek to embody a more hopeful vision of following Jesus in our cultural moment. Join us as we learn from those who are looking to live out a greater Jesus centricity in their areas of leadership and mission. If you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome. Check us out on social media or at JesusCollective.com for ways you can connect to this growing movement. Okay, let's get into today's podcast. We are interrupting our regular scheduled programming to have a bit of a, an intro, a, a news update, a sort of a, a family news. What's going on at Jesus Collective? I have with me Shauna Bourne. Shauna, there you are. I'm here. I'm here. And we've got, break. is this our first breaking news? Has I this think happened it- yet? This hasn't happened yet, but I feel like we're always learning uh, because this is the new season of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Like I got a lot behind. We should have. We should be. We should have been having breaking news because there's always stuff going on. But it's okay. We're ready. We're here now. We're here with an update, and and to help us with this update, we have. Well, we have someone super special with us. It's our friend, okay. John okay. Ant. Okay, <laughs> what? 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 Let's not like oversell. Okay, we gotta just you know, we just gotta kind of like. Okay, let me, the, let me try. Let me like, try that again. Oh again. my gosh, it was John. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, let me try again. Okay. okay we have okay. with us just a regular boring dude, John Hand, and he's gonna <laughs> join us. Wah wah wah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's throw it over to to the most boring man you've ever talked to, uh, John Hand. <laughs> Guys, I'm I'm humbled and I'm honored by the introduction. I I've never had such kind words said of me. I, I, I don't know. know what I'm blushing. Right. I don't know what to do right now. You've it's, never felt so honored, right? Yeah, it's felt so honored. So what's happening now is like the spirit is just going after our egos, right? It's that's right. Humility. That's right. It's, it's why you're a leader, John. It's that's right. The humble among so, us lead. Uh, my friends here, since they don't know how to do a proper introduction, my name is John Hand. <laughs> I'm on the core leadership team with Jesus Collective, and I give leadership to kind of our, you know, programming side of things. Mm. So that's, among other things, that's one of the things that I do. And so that's why I'm here interrupting your podcast in this segment. Sounds like an SNL kind of segment (laughs) here that we're doing, like a weekend update. Love it. Jesus Collective update. But there's some stuff coming up, right, John, that we just wanted folks to know about. So, you know, we can be unprofessional for a moment because what you have to say and the things coming up are important. So we will set aside our professionalism and just like Mm. let this break through. So thank you, John, for being here with us. And in in full honesty, I... I never had the professionalism. I mean, Shauna has a lot of that. But, <laughs> no, uh, uh, Shauna set aside her professionalism when she started talking in my right. podcast. Yep. So yep. I'll True. just say that. Every okay, time. Let's, Every time. Let's get to it. Let's put these people out of their misery. It wouldn't be a podcast if we weren't promoing something at the beginning. Everybody does yeah. it, so, yep. so will we. And we just wanted to highlight a couple things that we think are important. So Jesus Collective exist to amplify and equip a Jesus-centered movement. We do that through relationships. And we do that through resources. And one of the ways that we can amplify a Jesus-centered movement from an equipping perspective uh, is this thing called Learning Labs. So if you're listening to this podcast in the week of January beginning on the 16th, 17th, or 18th, maybe 19th, uh, you are not too late to apply f- to be a part of one of our learning labs. 
So if you go to jesuscollective.com and go to the event section, you can see that we have four learning labs that are launching. These are groups of uh, leaders who are coming together around a shared topic to learn from each other and some thought leaders, practitioners who've kind of broken ground or, you know, broken ice in some of the directions that, that these learning labs are based on. And so really we're getting at how do we do a Jesus-centered approach to some of the complex challenges of ministry, certainly local church and nonprofit organizational ministry. So we would love you to go check out the learning labs. We have room for like 20. There are going to be 20 in each learning lab. They're going to be great. We're going to be learning from some heavy hitters in the Mm -hmm. process. And so you can go learn more. Please apply soon when when you're listening to this. So the time other, is of yes. the essence of that one. Sorry, John. Time is of the essence. That's um, right. However, really quickly, a question I have heard is what is the difference between these learning labs and say the online the OLCs, the online learning yeah. collectives? Because people have been a part of those and this is something new, right? Yeah. Yeah, so these could are, you kind of flesh right. that out new. a little bit? That's a great question. So these these go for six weeks, and um, they meet six weeks in a row, and then they are designed for you to um, not only learn from others, but to find something that you want to move forward in your in your area of responsibility and ministry or leadership, and to kind of take on a, a task and go do that task. And then this group will come back and learn from each other. How did that go for you around this shared topic? Um, It's the, the online learning collectives are more about the, the formation of the person and they're like 10 to 12 hours a week of investment really around the formation of a person. This is around more like the execution of a, of a task of a challenge, approaching a challenge in ministry. So OLC's person, learning labs, task, a challenge. Yeah. Good distinction. Thank you. I imagine that like that could be super fruitful, like to have a team behind you to help you like in the design and the deliverable stage. Right. Give you the kind of real feedback that we don't always get as church leaders. Yeah. And by the time we get it, it's usually too late to change something. So to have have that kind of investment. Wow. That's, that's a gift. It's Great almost like a work a working group, but you get, you know, hundreds of hours of pooled wisdom from mm-hmm. from diverse contexts learning from each other. So mm. that's really the fruitfulness that we hope for Jesus Collective is that we we can find people who are like minded enough but different enough that we're learning yeah. from each other and being challenged. The um the other thing, just for time, I will be brief, is in late February, the twenty-third. In March the 2nd, we are hosting a conversation with Mark Baker. Mark's a professor at Fresno Pacific Seminary Mm -hmm. in California. He wrote a book called um, Jesus-Centered Church. It's Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. And um, not Jesus-Centered Church, Centered Set Church. (laughs) Thank you. It's a Jesus-centered approach using this tool, this paradigm called Centered Set. And it gives us a kind of a, a way to approach discipleship in the church from a way that uh, might be called, some have heard it said third way, but from a way that is as generously inclusive and uh, unity in diversity as we maintaining unity and diversity as we can, while still 
like discipling people in the way of Jesus in the narrow road, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a narrow mm-hmm. road. It mm-hmm. costs something. But we're trying to call people to discipleship in a way that allows them to be held in this space of grace in our differences, even though we're calling people to a narrow path. So mm. um, the subtitle is Shaping Disciples Who Practice the Way of Jesus in a Judgmental World. So in a world where we're being polarized and churches are being polarized and we're being yeah. canceled and we're canceling each other and we're right. all going to our ideological corners and just echo chambering with those who are like us, how do we make room for people to come together in our differences in the way that we apply discipleship? So we're going to look at issues like uh, issues and opportunities, like with our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. How do we do a center? How do we hold a centered set and how we navigate this um, this discipleship community? How do we hold centered set and how we navigate the discipleship community with next gen? in the particular challenges that they bring to the table and how do we navigate in the way that we do even preaching and teaching? How do we call people in a generous, spacious way with grace to the narrow road? Mm -hmm. What does that look like in communities so that we are making space for people and not canceling them, right? Or not othering them, but also calling us to follow Jesus um, in a transformational way. That's awesome. Can you repeat those dates again, John, for folks? Yep. February the 23rd and March the 2nd. You can go to our website. It's the featured event. Uh, it's a low cost. And we're learning from practitioners. This isn't just theory. So Mark's going to do some presentation. But we've got six practitioners who are living this out in in leadership that we're going to be learning from how they do it, how their mm-hmm. church does it. And that's what I'm looking forward to. This is not pie in the sky. This is like yeah. nuts and bolts. Come yeah. learn how others are doing this. Mm. That's so good. So good. Well, right. Thank you so much for joining us, John. This has been exciting to get some of these updates. I love hearing what's going on. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely bring this stuff to my leadership team and to to our church leadership. Uh, it's really a huge resource for us. So I want to thank you for for putting that stuff out there. Uh, so I think that's our family news update. Yeah. That's it. Back to our reg- regular schedule programming. All right, dear listener, let's tune in to Brad Jerzak. Well, welcome to the podcast. All those that are listening in, our live audience, and those that are listening in later. Today, we have an exciting guest, a friend of Jesus Collective, Brad Jerzak. He's joining uh, us today to talk about these statements of renovation and reformation that we've been naming as Jesus Collective. Shauna, you are part of the theology circle. Do you want to share a bit about these statements of renovation and, and where people might find that? Where they can find it is on the website, I believe. Is yeah, right on the blog, yeah. Yeah, perfect. See, there you go. <laughs> it's something that a group of us um, worked on for, I want to say, maybe a year. And it's been really cool. You and I have interviewed some folks for the podcast um, and breaking down these statements one by one. It's been really cool just to see these things come alive uh, for leaders and, and leaders taking them into their church contexts. And um, so, yeah, I'm really very excited about talking to Brad today about maybe I, I, you can't pick favorites. 
with these five statements. That's not like what you do. However, if I were going to break that rule and pick a favorite, I think this one may be one of my favorites that we're going to be talking about today. So um, I'm really excited to get into the conversation with Brad. Well, Brad, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, For those that don't know who Brad is, he's an author and teacher based in Abbotsford, BC. He currently serves as the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick and teaches peace studies courses with IRPJ.org. Brad is actually a longtime friend of Jesus Collective. He's taught at some of our online learning opportunities, and he is a celebrated author in our network. He's, He's written some pretty important works and books that I just think have had a lot of fruit for many folks in our network, uh, specifically The More Christ-Like God. Uh, if you haven't read that book, I totally would recommend it to you. And recently, Brad released uh, a brand new book on the topic of deconstruction called Out of the Embers, Faith After the Great Deconstruction. Brad, welcome here. Hey, thanks for having me back. Welcome, Brad. Thank you for being here. Appreciate it. Um, one thing I want to jump in on the bio, it's very current, right? But sometimes with the current one, people will think, oh, okay, so we've got an academic from some university or we've got an author. But I I also, and that I'm an Orthodox Christian, but I'm, I'm so grateful that I was ordained as a pastor in the Radical Reformation. Uh, I, I've never renounced my Anabaptist um, roots or theology. So I feel very at home with you folks when we start talking radical reformation. That's not only not foreign to me, but it's it's like, oh, this is the Jesus-centered stuff that really converted me to being a peacemaker. Yeah. And I'm so grateful. Um, and then I also think of the, the, you know, I spent 20 years as a pastor with some pretty broken people um, on the margins, mm-hmm. trying to to learn the questions. And so I'm we before we came on, we were praying about the Lord touching people today with his presence mm-hmm. and and that what we share is a strong belief in encounter. And um mm-hmm. so I just wanted to say that up front to to welcome those who 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 maybe um uh could orient themselves for the presence of God today in Christ. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Brad. So good. Well, thanks for, for joining us. This is really meaningful for us as we talk about what Megan Good identified as the statement uh, that grounds all other statements in the series of Reformation. And the statement is this, God always looks like Jesus and all scripture is properly read through him. And as we've invited Brad in this conversation, he, he's already Brad, you've already kind of hinted that like this is something that's meaningful for you. So I, I'm just curious, what stood out to you in reading this statement of renovation? What causes you to lean into this and not lean out? Yeah, definitely the person of Jesus Christ. And I've been thinking about that this week a lot, even um, comparing like standard systematic theology books that start with a chapter on God or on revelation and attributes of God. And you go, you, you have to pass through a whole bunch of chapters before you get to Jesus. And um, I just don't see that in the new Testament or in the first Christians. So for Jesus Christ himself is, well, first of all, John one, no one has seen God at any time, but God, the only son who's in the bosom of the father, he has made him known. And then later on in John, of course, he says, uh, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Mm-hmm. And 
I'm just really taken by the importance of that. And an example would be even in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, but it's rooted in the scriptures. We believe in God, the Father, Almighty. Right away, even our definition of God is contingent on the Son. What do we know about God? Well, he's the Father of Jesus. Oh, okay, now I have someone to look at. And why is he Almighty? It's because in Christ, he, uh, it was Christ by whom all things were made. So the fatherhood of God and the almighty nature of God are revealed to us through Jesus Christ, the, the beloved son who created the cosmos. And so I, I, that's on the theological level. But for me personally, I, I have met God in the person of Jesus. And I think those who pass through the great deconstruction, who who don't walk away from Jesus have mm-hmm. probably met him. Mm-hmm. And those who do trigger the question in me, didn't you meet him? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. everything around this, um, I'm an unapologetic Jesus guy. Mm. I, <laughs> I love how you describe yourself right there, Brad, an unapologetic Jesus guy. And I am fascinated by, uh, and I'm reflecting still, like in real time on what you just said about those who have gone through the deconstruction and have stuck with Jesus um, tells you that they met him. And those who walked away, it's like, did you really, like, it's like when he says to Philip, I've I've been among you. Like, did you not recognize me? And so that's fascinating. I'm wondering if you could just dig into that a little deeper about your own journey and why you are such an unapologetic Jesus guy. I love that. Um, but your own journey of coming to see God as completely like Jesus, that Jesus is that full revelation. How did you get there personally? Yeah, no, I'm going to use the word encounter, but I recognize that for some people, when they hear encounter, they think dramatic encounter. <laughs> it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be yeah. a dramatic encounter. What it needs to be is a living connection. And so for me, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up... Uh, in a in a family of, of Christians who um, who taught me that I could well I learned the name of Jesus from my mom's knee mm-hmm. and I was taught to um, uh, we I was taught to you know things that we almost like cringe at now it's like invite Jesus in your heart well hang on I did and then he did. <laughs> come into my mm-hmm. and so from my various earliest memories of praying i i could sense the presence of the person of jesus um with me and in me mm-hmm. it, a, a real presence mm-hmm. i remember that feeling and that closeness like it was yesterday as a six-year-old, and it's the same thing I felt in in the pre, pre-meeting prayer time today, mm. that closeness. Mm. So, so there's that sense of of a living God who comes near and communicates. I've met Him, you know. And then I would then say a second part of that is that's before, in a sense, it's before my fall. <laughs> I we mm. all we all start out. I believe, I don't believe in the doctrine of inherited guilt through original sin. I believe uh, children are innocent until they're not. And so then we begin to experience what it is to, to, to um, 
to stumble and and then to have a sense of alienation from the one who never leaves us. Yeah. And so um I I then needed to experience him as redeemer and savior. And mm-hmm. I've felt that more through my life like w- when I really botch things, when I harm people, when I've been the perpetrator of spiritual abuse, when I um when I when I leave others worse than when I found them, all of that is very, that's very painful to me. Um, And I need, I need mercy. And so in discovering that mercy, that's a whole nother level. And my, I would disappear into nothing if, if it weren't for this strong sense that we're to to pay forward the mercy we've received. Mm. And so that's, that's my agenda. And that's actually pretty much all I have left in terms of desire for ministry, paying forward the ministry. That makes sense to me, but then it's, it's completely connected to, to encounter of Jesus, not only directly in my heart, but also through those who showed me mercy, who embodied Christ. Um, Maybe I'll add one more, just uh, what the Anabaptists showed me, especially around Matthew 25 and the, uh, the power and importance of meeting Christ in the, in the poor, the sick, the prisoner, the naked, the, you know, those on the margins. In my case, it was especially powerful encounters uh, through people who, who deal with the limitations of disability, but mm-hmm but also manifest the presence of Jesus. I mean, you, you want to meet Jesus? Just have some actual friends with Down syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> They're virtually angelic. And then get to know them well enough to see that they're not. <laughs> and then at that point, you'll find, I think, I've just met Christ in them. So they've ministered to me mm-hmm. so much. So that would be one. These are all examples of a, of a living connection with a real person. I find that so beautiful. It makes me think of like Carl Rahner once said that like the Christian of the future is a mystic or nothing at all. And I appreciate that. Like rather than having a sort of a classic evangelical conversion story of like, uh, I was all bad and then I was all good. You're like, but I had something there. And like, there's that generosity and an appreciation for, for even the ways that Jesus met you as a young child from your mother's knee. I find I find there's a maturity about that that, that I want to emulate because it's really easy to just throw shade on what was to constantly shift from from direction to re- direction. I, yeah, I and I, I I I make it sound like it's all you know. Ex- uh, I didn't even mention the Bible there, but I I I would encounter the Christ of the Gospels in those Gospels as well, and I think that's my quality control that the Christ I meet in the Gospels ensures that the Jesus I meet in my heart isn't just a projection, mm. but also mm. the real Christ who lives in my heart is quality control for the way I read the Gospels, because you can botch that with, you know, bad interpretation. So, so I'm always comparing that, right? Is the one, are the words I'm reading and read in alignment with the words I'm hearing in my heart and where they're not, I just double check. I'm like, Oh, what's happening here? Is it a projection or an interpretation problem? But in any case, to me, that's, it's fun and active and beautiful. Uh, we are hanging out with our best friend and beloved. So I want to pull on a thread that you already kind of hinted at you. You talked about this fall you had. Um, I, I'm curious, what were the unchrist 
like images of God that you did encounter that probably were taught to you or, or that you picked up in the water. I'm curious, what would you identify or, you know, if God is fully like Jesus, then how is it that we come to a place where we have a less than Jesus looking God? Yeah, very good. So, um, you know, in, in the Baptist church I grew up in, um, oh, I, I, I was baptized in Grant Memorial Baptist Church. Okay. Uh, you know, here that. in Winnipeg. Yeah, in Winnipeg. And so the, my, I, I haven't thought about it this way, but my fall story would be after being baptized, two things, two really dramatic things happened. First of all, I was so grateful that I had a pastor who was willing to baptize me at the age of seven. That that's wow, unusual in, in yeah. probably in Baptist churches, but so he had a one-on-one with me, and I convinced him that I was ready, and he dare not withhold baptism from me, and he went with it. Of I'm course. so grateful. I'm so grateful. Right. So, but then what happened was like about the third day after my baptism, I, I, uh, I noticed I was still sinning. And I'm like, wait a minute. What? This, this is not phone. part of the deal. <laughs> um, so I had to I had to deal with that. And then on the positive side, I had a, a very strong sense of like illumination as I read the scriptures and voracious hunger. And I'm like, I I was conscious that I was understanding what I couldn't understand without the Holy Spirit. So these are things that were happening very early on, but but I developed a broken image of God when the revivalists started coming through. So I would say my parents gave me a healthy image of God revealed in Jesus as love. I would say my pastor did so as well in his regular preaching Sunday to Sunday. You know, we were pretty obsessive about evangelism, but at first it was still good news. But what happened with mm-hmm. the, I think the revivalists who would come through town, it was all about moralism, mm-hmm. merit measuring up, and they would specify, you know, particular brands of sin, and then they would emphasize um, the rapture that was coming, Armageddon to follow, because that that sells tickets, you know, yeah. and then and then with that, then a response. Um, with with an ultimatum that included a, the smoking gun of eternal conscious torment to your head. And while they're describing this retributive God, I'm also supposed to believe this is good. Mm-hmm. And I'm the incongruity there was so painful for me because I believed what they said, and I recognized that many of my cousins were not Christians in the oh, in that standard sense and that their blood was on my hands and yeah, i'm like man. seven eight years old and i'm buying in to like wow this is great that jesus is coming back probably next week um and and at the same time just like this is the god who who's going to cast my cousins who i love into a lake of fire forever and I think most of us only would handle that as a cartoonish thing then. You can't actually take mm-hmm. it seriously or you'd go mad. And I felt like I might. Mm-hmm. So I also felt powerless to convert them. So all of that. So I had the um I had that infused into my image of God. And 
and uh, and then the chick comics of course didn't help my goodness that, that those were abusive and i would say heretical but they became part of my diet and it's not like my parents were feeding it to me uh, something in me was con- wanting to consume it mm-hmm. so that's that's some of the so you, that's one version. I know that other people have other weird um, images of God. So if you, on the one hand, you've got, I describe, I categorize these in, in a more Christ-like God as one is this, the, the tyrant King who's a punitive yeah. judge who needs the pound of flesh. Another would be this distant silent God who's abandoned us to, and he's like the deadbeat dad or the absentee landlord who's, who's given us over to, So that kind of God's not hovering over me with punishment. He's just abandoned us. And then a third would be very common one would be the God I can manipulate like a genie. If I just worship, right, just pray, right. Just Mm -hmm. uh, to move the hand of God with my intercession. And, 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 um, and that's like a a bit of a fairy godmother. And then I think Mm -hmm. all three of those are combined in the Santa God who he keeps a naughty mm-hmm. list. You better watch out. He's coming to town. But on the other hand, you know, you go to the mall, you sit on his knee and then you don't get what you asked for. And that's very disillusioning. And then he's absent all year long, except for this one night where you don't get to see him. Like mm-hmm. all of that, you're hearing that Santa image on the same night that you are, celebrating Christmas Eve in church mm. and they get conflated. Yeah. So that's my experience of the, I would call that a fall in my image of God. Wow. What, so you said that you didn't get that from your family, your parents, your pastor, but you got it from the revivalist you came through. How, did you guys process that as a family or is this just you in your young mind internalizing this and just taking on that huge responsibility and angst and curious about how you process that at such a young age. Yeah, that's a good question. And I should say, I was already inferring some of the Santa stuff before the revivalist came. So this Mm -hmm. didn't all happen at once. There's probably stages, right? But yeah, I was, I was, I was internalizing it. I was making inferences about God from my Mm -hmm. observations Mm -hmm. and, and uh, my parents weren't conscious of this. And so they just kept doing what they do, showing me that right. Jesus loves me, um, that I could love the scriptures, that we have good news for people. But um, the one way we did process it and that I think was, <laughs> there's a mixed bag here. We had this sense of like who was saved and who was unsaved mm-hmm. in our family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we would pray for them. We would pray for the whole family by name every night. And and like my, <laughs> I had over, I had over a dozen aunts. I why well, no, I had aunts and uncles. I had over two dozen of them. I had like m- more than thirty first cousins. I had a bunch of second cousins or or the children of the first cousin. You know, so you're doing this, and it, it, some of it was good. We're interceding for these people, but I, my I understood that my intercession was these names are in and these names are out and we're just going to keep praying and praying and praying until they're all in. And that, Mm. that reinforced some 
positive things in prayer and some, I would say, some really negative stuff that creates the angsty element. Yeah. And again, seems to just add to that already heavy weight your your young self is carrying. And so obviously there is a recapturing of Jesus as the full image of God. Um, and and obviously that's important. You've you've talked about that and you've written about that. So why why would you say so though? Why is it so important to have Christ completely shape our image of God? I know personally it's it's it has been a part of my reconstruction and it has been so freeing, but what would you say to other folks like you have to have Christ as your complete image of God? Why is that so important? Yeah, well, I mean, aside from the fact that Scripture reveals that as factual. <laughs> um, I like that, that you're throwing yeah. it to Scripture. I mean, yeah. yeah. But also, like, yeah, I think why it becomes so important in real life is that whatever images of God or even of Jesus that, mm-hmm. we've, that we fashion, um, they trickle down back to us. So there's this feedback loop where, I am creating the image of God in in my image. And then whatever image of God I create, now I become like that image. So who made who here? And and I just think that's natural because what happens is if you have a God sense, if you have God consciousness, you've got to ascribe something, some attribute, some who, who this is, and how do you do that? And so if you do that apart from the revelation of Jesus, um, what are the bricks that you're going to build this image of God from? And so I may, I may build them from my own traumas. I may yeah. build them from, from uh, the foibles of my parents. I may build them from detachment. I may, I may, and I, and I think the ancients did this. They would say, okay, there's a God out there. And what can we say about this God? Well, this God made everything maybe, and, and he causes everything. All right. So now you have a miscarriage or you have lightning strike your village and burn it down. Okay. Well, Mm -hmm. so God made everything and he caused that. So now what Mm -hmm. kind of God causes that? Mm -hmm. And I, I just, and what can we do about that? And so you begin to develop religious practices to to please that God so that you so that lightning won't strike your house and so that you're mm-hmm. you, you yeah. won't experience disease or tragedy. And then when you do, if you're like, but wait, I, I've concluded that God is good and causes everything. So if I experience these things, either he's evil or he's good and I'm evil and this is punishment. Mm-hmm. So then every tragedy, every disease, every yeah. all of that builds, and you have then you have to have God come in person yeah. to set it right and say, uh, that's not who I am. Yeah. And I'm happy to say this though, too, that I although I find a lot of Christians don't have a, a Christ-like God. I'm grateful that Jesus Christ is so generous that he's shone his light even beyond Christianity. Beyond, yeah. So yeah. this last week, yeah. you know, I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita, which is Hindu scriptures. I, I've just finished the um, the complete scriptures of the Sikh people. I've, just, I've read the 
the Quran in the last month. Uh, you know, I'm I'm reading these things, and and a lot of them, I, yeah, they there's some unchristlike things there, just like in my religion. <laughs> but I'm also seeing revelation there. I'm like, how could you know this? So, for example, um, uh, talking about like it's not about heaven or hell; it's about our beloved. Oh, okay. I buy that. How did you know that? You didn't infer yeah. that. This, the light of Christ must have shone in your heart to reveal that to you, even before the Christians could get to you. Mm-hmm. So, totally, totally. Like here so we are generous. in. We're in Christmas, and like one of the scandalous stories in the Gospel of Matthew is these magi. You yeah. look up this word magi, and you're like, okay, the first instance of the word magi is in Daniel two, and it means sorcerer. Right? Yeah. Like, like pagan stars. Yeah. Like that's who came. And yet we don't tell, like we, we have a domesticated way of engaging our scriptures that even we're not getting the shock that, that God like used astrology and magic to bring these people to worship Jesus so that they could go by another way. Yeah. That, that sounds radical, but there, there's a standard Christian tradition called common grace that explains mm, yes. that. Right. And, wow. and that, that com- but that common grace, and here's the weird thing, it, from a Christian perspective, so not from a pluralist perspective, there is a pluralist perspective on that word, but the Christian perspective is that it is the light of Jesus Christ that shone, mm. and, has, and he holds all things together, and he pervades this world, and John one that he's the true light that shines on everyone coming into the world. So these kind of things, it's bigger than the categories I had when I was little. It's much more generous, much more inclusive while at the same time, elevating Jesus rather than dismissing him to the side sidelines. Jesus, all of a sudden, he's not just my Jesus. He's everyone's Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I want to pull on another thread here, right? Cause like, Perhaps there's someone here like, well, yeah, Jesus is God. You know, they confess this in the creeds, all of that. Um, I'll speak personally here. I I was really turned on to like a Jesus-centered theology while I was in Bible college. I remember approaching my pastor at the time just saying like, yeah, this is really fruitful for me. And he had, he had a caution. Like he didn't he didn't actually like the Jesus-centered approach. He he's like, ah, but you're you're not having to be careful. Way. Yeah, you got to be careful because you don't have the whole witness of Scripture is what he would say. He would be like, God is holy. And then he'd use the word like H-W-H-O-L-E, whole. He's whole, right? And he he had the suspicion that by focusing and giving Jesus interpretive priority, that there's this sort of like canon within a canon. Um, And so my question to you is like, why is it that the revelation of God in Christ must be given interpretive priority over all preceding revelations. Well, other than that, he told us so, which will I'll come to. <laughs> I love how obvious that is, but, but like it's but weird that it. we have to state it so obviously. Yeah. yeah. We, yeah. Don't, we don't always see this. Yeah. So I'll start with um I'll start with some just basic Christian theology um, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When we say the invisible God, who are we talking about? The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we have one image of that. And his name is Jesus Christ. 
Yeah. He's not just the image of the son. He to see him is to see the father to experience him is to experience the spirit. And so yeah. Paul not only says he's the image of the invisible God. He all, so the image means how God shows himself to us. The icon. How have we, it's yeah. a hermeneutical uh, revelation that God reveals himself in this way. Jesus Christ exegetes. He has made God known to us. Okay. And then He's not just made one third of God known or part of God or a face, a particular face of God for an episode right. in God. No, Paul says all the fullness of the Godhead. What's the Godhead? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How much of the Godhead? All the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in Jesus in bodily form. He embodied, he enfleshed all the fullness of the Godhead. And so that you're not just seeing an aspect of God, you are seeing an unveiling of God. So Philippians 2, there's this idea like, well, you know, he empties himself and he and he takes the form of a servant and he reveals himself on the cross. Um, that's not an aspect or or God in disguise as a servant. Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. that is the veil coming back and saying, mm -hmm. now I'm going to show you who God really is and what God is really like. And God is a servant. In fact, now in Christ, God has become human. And in fact, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, who is Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ crucified and risen and glorified is the prototype upon which Adam and Eve were designed. I mean, this messes with your theory of time, but we read in Hebrews one, he created the ages, you know, so this is who did Jesus Christ, not just an ethereal Christ who then later becomes a person, a human, but the one you see on the cross who we call the word of God reveals the nature of God as cruciform. That means cross-shaped. And by that, I mean that God is uh, my self-giving, mm. radically forgiving, co-suffering love. That's sort of Paul, you'd recognize me saying that all the time. Oh, yeah. It's it's, it should be in a song by now. I think so get on it, but that's what we, so now we see who God it really is. And we see who God really is most clearly and most fully mm. in the lamb who stands at the center of the cosmos and holds all things together and fills all things. It's by him and for him and through him, everything is made and redeemed. So I want to have a map. I don't feel like, like, Oh, Jesus is this little thing that we see mm. kind of God through a keyhole in. No, he's the whole thing. Yeah. And, and I think for some Christians, it's like they have this imagination that like, um, like going back to Philippians 2, you mentioned that, that it's like, ah, oh, he's emptied himself. They view like kenosis, the self-emptying is like, Jesus took off his superpowers. And it's like God Jr. on the earth. And right. I think one of the unfortunate like interpretations of that is that we don't realize like when you study the text of Philippians 2, it says because he was God. Being he God, yeah. yes. <laughs> he emptied himself, right? It was uh, self-emptying is not, it's not like an emptying of of divinity at all. 
Yeah, what he 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 could never cease to be fully God at any moment. So Lucy Pepiat, she was she's the principal at Westminster Theological Center where I used to teach, and and she she had this great image. She said, "Don't think of kenosis as like here's a bucket. Jesus is a bucket, and, and then he's got all he's full of godness, and now he has to empty out some of the godness. That's not what it is. What is emptied? Himself." He give, it's a, a absolute self-donation of all he is, poured into the world as incarnate love. And um, and what I what I love about that, and I, I mentioned this is even bigger than the Christian vision. I am seeing people who are captivated by that Jesus from other faiths now. You know, my friend Safi Kaskas, Muslim scholar, translated the the Quran, never intends to become. Christian, but he's absolutely captivated by Jesus, and he's a Jesus follower um, par excellence, and he's like, we need to read and learn and live the Sermon on the Mount and obey it, because Jesus said, here's the wise one who the, the, builds his house of the rock. He, he hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, and like, we still disagree on our Christology, but he is a, absolutely, he says, no good Muslim can ignore person of Jesus and they need to learn what he taught and they need to obey him. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's wow. pretty good because I'm hearing Christians who are saying the Sermon on the Mount applied today in peacemaking is dangerously naive and not to be taken literally. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. Like, so that reminds me of the parable of the two sons. The one mm. son says, I'll go to the field for you, father. And then he doesn't. And the other son says, I'm not going to the field for you. But then he does. And it mm. just scrambles your categories. But who's at the center of all this? It's it's Jesus. We're going to, we we orient ourselves towards him as best we can. Mm. This is so good. Um, and I just want to yes. say again, thank you, Brad. Um, it is just like, I hope people are just taking this. And we want to remind you guys that after this conversation, um, just a few minutes, there's going to be a time for Q&A. There are a lot of good comments coming through in the chat. So if you have questions, please uh, hold those, send them in the chat, send them to John. But we want to um, give you guys an opportunity to voice what you are chewing on as you're listening to this conversation. And so, Brad, this is like, this is a big question. And I'm sure you've heard it before. And I hope you're not tired of answering it because it's huge. But <laughs> for, the, for those who say, yeah, I absolutely agree that Jesus is God, but it's a stretch to say that it's the full revelation because we have all these other scriptures uh, that depict these other versions of God. In fact, I've even heard our pastor say, you know, when he was a professor, a theology professor, he would always come up against uh, students who were questioning their faith. And it was because of image of God there. And, and, and even some of them thinking that they don't believe. And these are theology students. They're even like pulling away from their belief. And they're like, they point to certain passages that depict uh, images of God. And they're like, I can't believe in this God. And, and he would go, yeah, <laughs> me either. But yeah. that's not the full revelation of God. And so... Can you help us unpack that, Brad? Like, what do we do with these other things found in Scripture um, that have these opposing views of God? I'm so happy you asked that. <laughs> <laughs> if, you if, you, if you hadn't, I was going to ignore your question and answer this one. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> um, so I've written a whole book on this called A More Christ-Like Word. 
reading scripture the Emmaus way. And so um, I think a hinge point in our understanding of, of the nature of God through the revelation of scripture is in the story of the road to Emmaus. Here we have two disciples, perhaps a couple, on the afternoon of the resurrection of Jesus. They're walking to Emmaus and they're sad. They're sad because they don't understand what's happened, even though they've heard Jesus is alive. They don't get it. Somehow they don't believe it. And Jesus comes right. alongside them. And he says, so what's, you know, tell me what's, what's been going on. Why, why are you so sad? And they're like, haven't you heard? And they begin to tell Jesus who they think, who they thought he was. We thought, well, they mm -hmm. don't say we thought he was the son of God. Yeah. Uh, they don't, they, they think he might've been the one God was sending to deliver Israel, but now he's been crucified. So maybe he wasn't. And they're very confused and downcast and, and he's like, oh, you, you're so slow to believe the scriptures. Isn't that interesting? Um, he doesn't even say, why didn't you believe what I told you? He says, you're, you, and, and he opens their eyes and he opens their hearts and he opens the scriptures to show them what they couldn't see until that moment. And they couldn't see it. So his, you know, his, his rebuke is, is, it has to be at one level tongue in cheek because he knows they couldn't see what the scriptures were already saying until after the fact of the, uh, both that, that not only that he rose from the dead, but that he comes to them to open the scriptures. Now, any good Jew will not enter those scriptures without a rabbi. I don't know why Christians think they can. Mm. Jesus is our rabbi. You, I would say you have no business in the Old Testament. That's not your Bible mm. without reference to Jesus. Mm. So mm. stay out of there. Wow. But if you want to enter there, go with your rabbi, your sponsor. Mm. And he's going to, what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus, and then again later that day in the, in the upper room, it says he shows them from Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures. Later, he will add the Psalms. Um, how the how how the Son of Man must must suffer and then come into his glory. When with the opening of the scriptures, they, they feel their hearts burning. And then the breaking of the bread in the home, they recognize him. And this is to be, this is how it is to be today mm. in, in the opening of the scriptures and the breaking of the bread in our fellowships, Christ shows us how all of the scriptures are fulfilled in him point to him. And so um, as a good Anabaptist, I was taught you know, I, I made the mistake of preaching. I, I, it's so embarrassing, the things I've done. I remember <laughs> preaching a sermon at the Mennonite church called Let God Be God. Mm. And it was a story of Elijah calling down fire. Mm. And I made no reference to how this is fulfilled in Jesus. I just wanted to say, God gets to be God, whatever he does. And that can include blah, blah, blah. It was so un-Anabaptist yep. that thankfully, <laughs> there was a retired 
pastor who's who had been assigned to supervise me as a youth pastor who took me <laughs> aside and said, you never got to Jesus, did you? Wow. You didn't see how this passage is fulfilled in Jesus, and you didn't see how Jesus corrects mm. the lens of a, a of an Elijah only theology, you know, it, it mm-hmm. was just so helpful that he did that. But so tell like, us, Brad, how did Jesus correct that? Because there's a story in the Gospels where Jesus corrects it. Yeah, well, so in this case, um, you know, well, uh, that particular sermon I was talking about the prophets of Baal, but but his in the Gospels there's this uh, refers to another story where there's fire coming down at, at Elijah's call. So. Two of the disciples come to Jesus. They've been preaching through Samaria. And they're like, um, they're not listening to the message. So perhaps we should call down fire from heaven like Elijah did. And he's referring to the story in in 1 Kings where uh, a king wants to have Elijah come before him. And so he sends out 50 soldiers to get Elijah. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven in quotes, <laughs> and it and kills these 50 soldiers. Then another 50 come, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven and and uh kills 50 more. And then the third, a third general comes along with with, with 50 soldiers and says, like, don't kill us. We're, we're just trying to bring you to the king. Like, don't, don't shoot the messenger here. And so the disciples had read this because that was also in Samaria, and said, yeah, we should yeah. do the same thing. And uh, by we, they meant you to Jesus. <laughs> you should do this because you're just applying the Bible. This is the God we know. And in fact, this is the God the narrator is describing when he says it's from heaven. Maybe he means it's from the sky, but there's the implication that it's coming from the heavens as in God is responding to his prophet as a death dealer. Mm. Jesus rebukes them. And he says, you, you don't know what spirit you are of. I, mm. I wonder what to do with that phrase because it's the same spirit that the Old Testament narrator is of. The belief that God is a death dealer. And you can understand why. That's how the text says it, right? So we've got Christians today who go, see, God is a death dealer, and I can show you the story in 1 Kings mm-hmm. without reference to the rebuke of Jesus or the fact that immediately, almost immediately after that, Elijah is on the Mount of Transfiguration, surrendering to Jesus, mm-hmm. listening to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. Um, so here's how I would teach this to a nine-year-old. Um, we start with Jesus. And I, I don't just say would teach this to a nine-year-old. I teach this to nine-year-olds who interrogate me on it. because they right, you're, are... you're welcome to come teach all the nine-year-olds in my church. <laughs> yeah, okay. same. Well, same. Here's, what, here's what I will teach them. Um, first, we're going to start by memorizing a Bible verse. John 10.10. 10, it is the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. Mm. But I, God... <laughs> Right? Jesus is God, right? Right. Well, okay. I tell you, I, I've come that you would have life and that more abundantly. 
you know, in the, in the previous passage, I'm talking about the son of man has come to save lives, not to kill them. And what is he? He's the revelation of the father. So John 10, 10 now becomes our hermeneutic of God. So part two, then why does this passage say that God did this? And you cite some death dealing passage. And that's where I bring in Pete ends. God let his children tell the story. Children that hadn't met Jesus, children that hadn't heard of Jesus, children that hoped there was a Messiah coming, but children who ha- did not have a revelation of God, um, who, who, among those people who'd never seen God at any time. So God lets his children tell the story, though, and that's going to include their perspective on those events. Oh, bad guys came to get Elijah, fire came down and killed them. God protected Elijah and killed the bad guys. (laughs) Okay. Jesus says, no, that's not what was happening. Wrong spirit, right? So this is tricky, but it's not too tricky because a nine-year-old can understand it. Okay. God is a life giver, not a death dealer. John 10, 10. Two, when I see God killing someone in the Old Testament, it's because God let his children tell the story. And it's important that they do. We don't cut those passages out. I'm not a Marcionite. We need those passages to see how we narrate God the same way they did. And we need correction the same way Jesus gave it. Third part. Now we look for Jesus in the passage. Where is Jesus in these passages? Um, So I'll give you an actual example. One of my little friends, she was reading the Old Testament. She's a voracious reader, wants to know the, the, she likes the R-rated sections of the Bible. Her parents are wondering whether they should be hiding their Bibles. <laughs> That's so good. But she finds the Bibles and then she finds the R-rated stuff. And like her, her, her birthday wish was like, I, when I turn 10, I want to find out what prostitute means. You know, <laughs> I think they, yeah, I won't go there, but she contacts me through her father and says, I, I've been reading the Bible the way you told me to. John 10, 10. Mm. God is a life giver, not a death dealer. But I've been reading Jeremiah and Lamentations, Mm. the siege of Jerusalem. And people are even eating their babies. Uh Uh-oh. And so some of those texts say that God sent Babylon and that God did this to them. But she says, but I know he didn't because, because God is a life giver, not a death dealer. And it says that because God let his children tell the story and they're a bit confused. (laughs) I'm like, okay. She says, but I kept reading and I said, where Jesus, where are you in the story? See, she's actively inviting Jesus to be her rabbi in the reading and it just gave me, it made my hair stand on end to hear the revelation she got when she called on his name. She said, I found him in the story where, this is exactly how she said it. He's in the tears of Jeremiah as he weeps over Jerusalem. Oh. Do you not remember oh, that Jesus mama. did this too? He sat outside of Jerusalem and he wept over the city when it was going to be destroyed. And his prayers are in the tears of Jeremiah. And I'm like, Oh, goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. Oh I'm just ready to start talking in tongues for like an hour. Here we oh. go. Right. John <laughs> is like making sure. You know, yeah. Oh. Okay. Fan um, the eye. You know, so this is what I mean. 
They said, she, she knows you don't enter those texts without Jesus, because if you do, you will infer an unchristlike God and then call it mm-hmm. the word of God. No, mm-hmm. Jesus is the word of God. Amen. And every scripture that claims Amen. to reveal him must bow before the living God when he came in the flesh. And he said so. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So oh. I have, I'm, I'm a Christian reader of the text. Oh, yeah. So good. If we okay, want Brad to. Brad did not ahead. come to play. Yes. It's now, here we are. Sorry. Give you the says. We want to bring in John Hanch, who is our yeah. chat host. Uh, and we just want to further this conversation. So, John, uh, prepare to join us and be the voice of the people. Yeah. He's yeah, voice, voice of, of the, the people. people. Man. <laughs> um, that was that was a, a powerful story, Brad. The the yeah. voice of the people are saying things like, uh, and I, I really want to send encouragement and thanks for our women, our our sisters sharing questions. Uh, so we have Brenda, we have Kathy, we have Peggy, who are sharing uh, some really great questions. So looking at uh, Brenda and Kathy's questions, saying there's um, the revelation that we receive of Jesus is in the scriptures who helps us, who points to the ultimate revelation. So how do we help people uh, move to the scriptures in a, in a time in history where people are moving away from the scriptures? There's, there's not a draw to the scriptures uh, or people who are in the scriptures who can't see Jesus, uh, Jesus revealed fully in Jesus in the scriptures. So any, any thoughts on that? How do we get people... To, to see Jesus in the scriptures. Um, the, so, well, we, we call them to look for him, first of all. So, for example, uh, and, then, and then we just utterly fascinate them with the beauty of how he shows up there. So, oh, here would be an example. Um, you've got the book of Jonah. Interesting story. Fascinating story. Even without Jesus, it's like pretty cool story. I remember... Lots of readings of that as as a child. Um, But then we notice how Jesus reads it. And this is why, let's say in in the creeds, but also at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, it'll say things like that that he died according to the scriptures and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, they're not talking about the gospels. They hadn't Mm -hmm. been written yet. Mm -hmm. Where are we seeing Jesus die and rise again, according to the scriptures? So that's actually our, our, um, our Emmaus uh, mandate. Then as we go to the scriptures to go look for that. So when Mm -hmm. Jesus does that himself, he says, uh, he says to his opponents one day, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as, the, as, as, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. And, and, and like, so Jesus is looking in those scriptures for his own death and resurrection, for a, a foreshadowing of his suffering and his glorification. And there you have it in Jonah um, chapter two, he's in the belly of the fish 
and he prays, and he's not just praying, rescue me from the fish. He's saying, rescue me from death, for I have gone down into the heart of the mountains. Rescue me from the, the pit. And he's talking about Sheol. It's, it's just, it's poetic. But if you take the poetic language seriously, it's resurrection language, and Jesus sees it there. Mm. I'm like, wow, we could see it everywhere. So there's a really good book on this. You can get the PDF online free, Milito, M-I-L-E-T-O, of Sardis, which is one of the churches in Revelation. He was a grand disciple of John. Milito of Sardis is preaching a sermon. This is probably two-thirds of the way through the second century. And he's reading it the way John reads the scriptures, as you when you look at the gospel of John and he, he, because he frames it all around Pascha, the Passover and how Christ mm-hmm. fulfilled the Passover. Mm-hmm. And so in this sermon, he preaches on Pascha weekend. And in the sermon, you can read it in about 30 minutes in the sermon. He explains how all of the scriptures anticipate the life and the passion and the resurrection of Jesus. He gives you he explains it by talking about shadows and reality or a, a, um, a blueprint and a building like, and how these things, they, they are anticipating something bigger coming, something more beautiful coming that each of the stories and narratives in the, in the scriptures are almost like, well, you make a model, a, a nine inch model out of clay and that nine inch model out of clay will become a 90 foot model out of gold you Mm. know so it's 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 a magnification and then he just proceeds to go through the scriptures example after example after example and i have categorized the categorized them in my mind and in and in that book i did where every time you see anybody suffering in the old testament anticipates the much greater suffering of jesus christ every time you see a victory in the Old Testament, no matter how dubious and bloody, you are anticipating the much greater victory of Christ over Satan, sin, and death, where no one else has to die. Every time you see sin in the Old Testament and betrayal and the fallenness of God's own people, you are seeing an anticipation of the much greater betrayal uh, uh, through humanity, of through Pilate, through Caiaphas, through Judas. Um, Mm. And all of the, so that covers almost all of the old Testament. And you're like, how does, how does this story anticipate that one? Well, here's a trick. When you start with the end, when you read from the end, when you read from the Emmaus point of view, then you can Mm. go back in and see how it was there already. The, the way Elijah calls down fire from heaven you could do something good with that in terms of how much greater Christ calling down the fire of the Holy Spirit from heaven mm. that does not destroy and divide, but the unites. But you could also just say uh, what Elijah does there is pretty mean and it's fulfilled in the wishes of Jesus own disciples, you know, like, so it's always, we call this uh prefiguring Pre- the old Testament text prefigure the old or the new specifically the passion and and resurrection of christ that's a whole way of engaging scriptures that's different than just like a grammatical historical. oh it's very different 
it, yes. it calls us to like a theological reading of the text that was really like true of the early church and how they were reading uh, the Old Testament. It's beautiful. John, you got another one for us. Yeah, I do. Um, so this is practical and pastoral. We have a lot of leaders here who are in care of the souls of people in their churches and organizations. And uh, how do we help people like understand uh, this shift towards Jesus as the primary revelation? So we can, I know we can quote scripture and say, well, he's the primary revelation of God. Yes. But how do we practically disciple people into this understanding to actually replace less lesser images of God with fuller images of God in Jesus. Any, any pastoral advice for us? Yeah. Um, well, I, I would start with, I'll just use my story. So what I learned from the Mennonites and, and cherished to this day and carried into the church plant we were involved in with for 20 years and which I now still practice as a monastery preacher for the Orthodox churches, we will never preach a Sunday sermon that is not about Jesus Christ. Every week, he's the punchline by policy. You don't preach leadership themes from the life of Moses. That's BS. <laughs> you, how is this about the good news of Jesus? And Amen. a good way, and, and, and how I think about it is this. If this person standing before me is here for the first time and the last time. They don't get to leave here without being uplifted by some good, a good news about Jesus and his love for them. And so even in, in the, um, even in, in the Orthodox preaching, we would say every gospel story is about the whole gospel. So I wouldn't just preach about, wow, isn't it neat that Jesus healed a blind man? Um, yes, he did. He does that all the time. Get out more. You'll find out. But how is this How is this the gospel story in that pericope, right? So that's, that's just the policy of our teaching. At a pastoral level, um, whenever, I, whenever I would meet with anyone, whether it was for like a kind of a counseling session or just for a three-minute prayer at the front of the church after a service, to phone calls in the middle of the week. Um, at some point, they're going to dump on dump on me. <clears throat> they want to share their hurts. They want to share their anxieties. They want to... <clears throat> I'm not a therapist. <laughs> I'm not qualified to mess with their lives. But what I can do every single time, and we can do it in, the, in a coffee shop or a lobby, uh, you know, or a car, you know, let's bring that to Jesus. Mm. I want you to close your eyes and see the love of God in his face right now. There he is. Picture him. I don't mind, I don't mind saying that. Picture him. Uh, because we're picturing someone real. And then I, I say... Um, Let's bring that to him, what you're carrying right now. And let's, I want you to put it into his open hands. And now I want you to look in his face and, 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 and I'm going to ask him a question and see what he says to you. Jesus, what do you want me to know? 
And then I'll say, what's he saying? So I'm not being their prophet. I just right. want them to listen to Jesus. And I just don't meet, meet anybody who can't hear him in that moment, including atheists mm. who don't believe in him. I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm part of, I, because of my own, my own uh, brokenness, I've been attending 12-step recovery since 2009, started the steps 2008. And what I, I just see people over and over again, having real life encounters with a living God who is setting them free from addictions in a way that is verifiable transformation, even if they can't use his name yet, but I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. so I'm like, well, whatever your higher power is called. Um, um, I think that when they call out to their higher power, I believe there's only one person listening <laughs> and he wants to, to come to them, even if he has to come to them anonymously Mm-hmm. But if mm-hmm. I'm involved, mm-hmm. but it's back to the pastoral thing. It's like, so I don't, you know, Jesus is the center of both our pastoral responses in the moment to individuals. And he's the theme of every message we give. Now there's a time mm-hmm. to do other stuff probably during the week, but the, the Sunday morning proclamation is act every Sunday is meant to be an Easter service. We are mm-hmm. proclaiming the risen Christ who lives among us today every Sunday morning. Mm. Amen. Mm. Brad, Brad, it, Amen. Brad it, it's like you think Jesus is real. <laughs> yeah, we were having a conversation just this morning, you know. <laughs> it's as if, yeah. It's Brad, as thank as you. <laughs> thank you so much. You have given us so much to chew on, thank so much you. to reflect, so much for our heart and soul to be just glad and hopeful in. You've mm. given us a lot of what I like to call Print it out and slap it on a t-shirt moments. <laughs> the leadership of Moses. That's BS. That's maybe my favorite. Um, but you have said. Now, uh, now so on our next fundraising things. campaign for Jesus Collective. Yes. Uh, we're yes. selling there it is. after. We need $50,000. Yeah. There's the You're t-shirt. Right. There That's it. it. There it comes. That's it. Perfect. You're welcome. Yep. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com where you can find more resources and upcoming events, learn about getting involved through partnership, and donate so we can keep offering content like this and engage more people and churches around the world. We'd also love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and feedback. You can drop us a message on social media or email us at connect at jesuscollective.com. Until next time.